This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. Hello, I'm Glenn Wheeler. Welcome to episode 276, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Mi'kmaq Matters. Late last year, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador released its Critical Minerals Plan. Critical minerals are those 30-plus compounds needed for energy transition away from fossil fuels for items like electric vehicles and solar panels. Typical for the NL government when it comes to natural resource development, the plan is all about the money and nothing about the environment. The plan will help unlock the full potential and maximize the value of critical mineral resources, gushes the document. Help make the province a globally competitive jurisdiction. Also typical of the way we do things in Newfoundland and Labrador, there were freebies for the industry, nearly $5 million in taxpayer money to find minerals from which private companies will profit. Or, as the government says, money to de-risk and attract private investment. The impact of mining, especially on countries of the global south, is the subject of a new book by Vancouver-based writer Christopher Pollan. Pitfall, the race to mine the world's most vulnerable places, looks at how the global mining industry sucks minerals out of weaker jurisdictions and leaves them with the environmental fallout and few of the benefits. How will the rush to find critical minerals affect Newfoundland and Labrador and the rest of the world? Christopher Pollan is our guest this week on Mi'kmaq Matters. Doing this book has allowed me to do a historical sweep uh, that begins roughly at the end of the Second World War. At a moment when when mining was uh, being transformed by technology, and and what I mean by that is that... um, Harnessing fossil fuels enabled us to open pit mine, which meant that for, you know, the for the first times in history, for in history, we were able to um, mine low-grade deposits, which meant in the past, you know, we we might have uh, targeted really rich veins or concentrations, um, but and and so that launched this whole new era of mining in the world. And in that, in those post-World War uh, II years, we saw mining expand into the developing world. Uh, the model largely with transnational companies um, who, who had the expertise and, and, and the wherewithal uh, to, to basically mine all these commodities and everything from silver to uh, like in, in Bolivia that I write about, uh, copper in Chile, uh, where you know uh, copper, uh, the biggest producer of copper, remains the biggest producer of copper in the world. Um, and, and I also look at uh, places like Indonesia uh, and the island of New Guinea, where an American company called Freeport uh, built. They were really pioneering in the developing world by establishing this absolutely massive copper gold mine 
that is still in operation today, which is going to be in operation uh, for decades, uh, in, in the midst of an absolute, uh, you know, 70 miles away from any coast through the most rugged rainforest, harshest environment you could ever imagine. And, you know, it, we saw these feats of engineering that that were absolutely spectacular. Uh, and, and it just showed what, uh, you know, this new era of mining could, could do and what it could achieve. For Newfoundland and Labrador, I think it has also been part of that uh, picture. It's a post- um... It's a post-war uh, scenario we've had, and uh, and now uh, keeping uh, uh, in the same pattern of uh, mining development, we have discussion in our province of of critical minerals. And are we going to see a new form of development? Uh, in your book, you talk about Elon Musk and how Elon Musk, uh, the Tesla founder is going to go uh is going to cut some of the steps and deal directly with uh acquiring some of the critical minerals he needs yeah there's a few thing, things to unpack here i mean first of all you know, i know that newfoundland announced uh its critical minerals plan uh fairly recently and i think they're looking at um almost five million dollars and it, my understanding is it's to aid in exploration and and locating and locating significant deposits that are that are economical to, to mine um but you know critical metals maybe just to start i mean what are they um so they're metals that are important to industry or life in general where it's presumed there or predicted that there'll be bottlenecks in supply and so in the case of the clean energy transition uh you know we're looking at at metals that will be needed to to build all these batteries we're talking about for electric vehicles but also for storing energy uh that we generate through using wind solar those kinds of things um and so with all these metals it's anticipated there'll, there'll be limitations right um and one thing that makes a place like newfoundland and just canada generally very attractive in terms of these so-called critical uh minerals is that we are a stable jurisdiction in the world, relatively stable. And I'm when I say that, I'm comparing us to a place uh, like the Democratic Republic of, of Congo, which has most of the cobalt in the world currently in production. And, and that's an example of a critical metal because there's this one country that's relatively unstable that has all these metals that we need not not just cobalt but also copper uh and tantalum and a whole bunch of other things but congo um, as you mentioned has a civil war in a large part of the country also which uh, is yeah development difficult that's right and, and and you know to this day in the northern part of that country uh mining is a lot of mining is is run by warlords and the proceeds of that uh fund perpetual, at least what at this point is perpetual civil war. Um, in the southern part where uh, where most of the copper mining uh, and uh, where the most of the copper happens, uh, uh, it's more politically stable. Uh, and, and 
we've seen in recent years an influx of Chinese mining companies, uh, but as well as uh, Canadian companies as well. Uh, Ivanhoe, uh, based in Vancouver, has a big, really big mine there, uh, as well as Glencore, which is based in Switzerland, which produces a lot of cobalt and copper there as well. Um, but you know, to get back to this idea of critical metals, Newfoundland uh, or British Columbia, where I'm speaking to you from, um, these are very stable political jurisdictions. And quite frankly, uh, you know, the subsidies that mining companies enjoy here as well are significant. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we see such a concentration of Canadian uh, flag companies, you know, exploration companies out in the world right now flying the flag of Canada. And in relation to uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, it's um, Newfoundland and Labrador has what one mining uh, principal, uh, the former head of Marathon Gold Corporation, called a very permissive regulatory regime. So the Mining Act in Newfoundland has not been updated for many years. So it's the best of both worlds, a stable uh, political environment and uh, not very strenuous uh, regulations when it comes to uh, notification, etc., um, and, um, so might we, uh, so how do you think things will unfold? Uh, we have, uh, this sure. talk about critical minerals, um, exploration yeah. is going underway and, um, what will it look like when these, uh, when, um, the minerals yeah. are found and things are ramped up? Will it look like mining as we have seen it, or do you see any, any differences in the way things might unfold? Well, you had, you had alluded to Elon Musk, uh, and, and he's relevant to that conversation about whether business as usual mining will, will continue or whether or how much disruption we'll see in, in how mining is, is done in the world, especially in the context of this ramp up that is needed for, for clean energy because uh, people a lot of people don't realize that that you know the, the world of clean energy will be much more metals intensive by necessity uh, than the fossil fuel world uh, just uh, to give you a quick example um, I recently wrote an article about the the, the new uh, Ford f-150 electric truck it's called yes, I saw that mm -hmm. and and you know this thing is basically a 6,500 pound battery. Mm. I mean, there's hardly any moving parts in the thing. It's it's a it's a bunch of battery cells all you know packed up together uh, in this encased in aluminum, and and so when you know in July 2020 when Elon Musk uh, he he did something that that kind of put this shockwave through the mining industry because at that moment. Uh, he, he basically put out an open call for battery grade nickel to all the miners on earth. And, and what was interesting about it was he didn't even really specify miners. Like it was just to anyone and everyone who might be able to, um, to supply their company with, with ethically sourced, environmentally safe uh, uh, nickel. And nickel is, is a, a big, uh, battery metal. I, I suppose you could say it's a critical metal. And I and I seem to recall that Labrador has quite a lot of nickel. Or, or Absolutely, is it, yes. Is mm -hmm. it Boise's Bay? Yes. Is that, is that nickel? Yeah. Um, so um, Musk had said that uh, 
He said, uh, Tesla will give you, a, uh, this is a quote, he said, Tesla will give you a giant contract for a long period of time if you mine nickel efficiently and in an environmentally sensitive way. And and like, again, what was fascinating about that was he, he was saying that to everyone and anyone who might be able to get their hands on this metal. He wasn't like necessarily talking to mining companies. Mm. Um, and so, and so that is interesting because we'll see, I think we'll see a disruption to business as usual mining, uh, but the, the real disruptions will come from outside the industry. And when I say disruption, I just mean a, a serious change in the way, in, in the model, in the, in the basic model of how, uh, you know, metals are taken from the ground and, and delivered to industry and everything else. And, you know, there's a couple forces um, that will, that forces of disruption, so to speak. And, and I'll just give you an example or two uh, of what's going to be disruptive from the outside uh, moving forward. And, you know, for one thing, you know, it was long thought that scarcity of supply, like simply running out of a metal, like on, on the face of the planet, would be the biggest problem we would have when it came to, you know, an imp important metals like copper. Um, but it's emerging that social license, uh, and that's kind of this buzz term, but basically it means, you know, conflict with communities that don't want a mine to go ahead uh, is going to be a bigger problem moving forward. Uh, you know, a lot of the metal, like we're talking about Canada and critical metals, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of these metals will come from the global south. And in, from places where historically there's been uh, political instability, there's been uh, rule of law is weak. And, and historically, companies have been able to come in and, and mine relatively cheaply. I mean, high risk, but, uh, you know, I think uh, the Congo is a great example of that. But so we're seeing bottlenecks and this social license thing is, is one of them because communities, communities and governments uh, in the global south, for example, um, you know, will need to be cut in for a bigger share of the spoils than in the past. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Indonesia in recent years, um, they have gone as far as banning the export uh, of raw, unprocessed, unprocessed mineral, um, minerals like nickel, especially. And the result of that has been that China has invested billions in building smelters in on Indonesian soil. And so that's an example. So there's this kind of uh, resource nationalism piece where uh, nation states and, and communities will need to be cut in for more. And also, you know, uh, indigenous rights are ascendant across much of the world. And there's um, forces at play that are going to loom ever larger. Like there's uh, something called the UN Declaration on 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 the rights of indigenous peoples. And that's something that uh, basically demands consultation and consent by, by indigenous people before a project can move forward. And we so, can, and just on that, on that point, uh, in terms of Canada and Newfoundland Labrador, uh, in Northwestern Ontario, we have the Ring of Fire, uh, the area known yeah. as the Ring of Fire, that has yeah. a lot of critical minerals, but it also has indigenous communities who don't necessarily want to see their land torn up with roads and and mineral development um 
you know, they, uh, they have a different, uh, they have different priorities. And, um, and I, I suppose even in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we will see uh, a lot of um, resource development, but the, the benefit, um, the electric vehicles, uh, you know, a few will be used in Newfoundland and Labrador, but we're talking about people in urban areas who perhaps, uh, to be a bit cynical, people who don't want to take uh, mass transit and prefer to ride in their vehicle by themselves as per usual, who don't want to make any changes to the way they live. So we have to uh, sacrifice our natural environment so they can uh, carry on uh, with their current lifestyle. So uh, there are um, there are competing priorities here, even in Canada and Newfoundland and Labrador. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think Newfoundland and, and even just provincial governments across Canada uh, are putting themselves, I think, in a tough position because they speak about the need to expedite mining for critical metals, right? And, and, and Newfoundland is, is just one of many provinces that, you know, have put forward critical metal plans, uh, British Columbia as well. Um, and, but at the same time as they're doing that, they're paying lip service at listening to communities on the ground and, and, and especially to indigenous communities. Um, about and, and about giving them a real say, but what happens when a community decides that it doesn't want to mine upstream of their water supply, or you know who wins out in this? Uh, you know we need to build more batteries. Uh, so do electric cars win out over local people who have no plans of leaving a place that is going to face serious impacts environmentally that might be lasting, uh, and, and you know. Again, even just uh, the networks of road systems that we're talking about that, that are needed um, are, you know, th there's huge impacts to that. And, you know, one thing that I looked at in the book is that we need to make choices about what we need and what we don't. Um, and so, and it gets to the very heart of what the clean energy transition is or, or should be. I mean, like, what is that? What, like, what are we, tr what is the objective of this? I mean, are, are we just trying to swap 1.4 billion uh, existing fossil fuel vehicles to, to electric? Uh, or do we build back smarter? Uh, you know, there's a lot of questions that aren't solved with that. And, and like I said, I think we're going to see some serious conflicts in the, in the, in the shorter term even between governments that kind of talk like they want it both ways. They want to be these clean energy battery powerhouses, but at the same time, they want to act as if they're going to give a real say to what happens on the ground to people that live closest to the, to the minerals. Mm. And, you know, something's going to have to give there. Mm. And I wonder, uh, as an extension of that, I wonder if we are uh, in a sort of, um, a state of denialism where we think that um, we can just go on uh, more or less as usual swapping the electric vehicles as you say but um, there are some issues here you in your book you quote uh, Simon Michaud who was a well-known observer on um, critical minerals as you say he was uh, people thought of him as a bit of a crazy back in the day but they recognize now the truth of uh, uh, of what he is saying that 
<clears throat> we just don't have enough critical minerals to go on as we are now without making some major adjustments. Um, so as well as the the political social uh, license uh, issue, we have a, a, a sort of um, a looming shortage uh, scarcity issue of these critical minerals. If we think that we can just uh, adjust um, uh, as the way we assume we can. Indeed. Um, if it's just a, a swap out of the fossil fuel civilization for some kind of futuristic green civilization that's all electric, I, I think that's fantasy. Uh, even if we had enough metals, uh, at least to, to, to work on a timeline that would actually have an impact on, on lowering our emissions, given the short timeline that we have with that. One thing I look at... Uh, in the book is unfortunately a lot of the solution and maybe fortunately a lot of the solutions to lowering our emissions go far beyond electric cars and to really have an impact i think we're going to have to address the the real root causes of, of our emissions and this is a tough one because you know a lot of it comes from our patterns of consumption and in in the rich and especially in the richest countries in the world, like for example, where I sit in Vancouver, uh, you know, I consume probably like 13, 14 times more just stuff, everything from food, fuel, everything else, than my counterpart in Bangladesh. And that disparity is at the root of why our emissions are so out of control and what and and it's gonna have to start in the richest countries. And, and this is tough messaging, right? Because I don't see us voluntarily, right? People aren't gonna voluntarily lower their standards of living here. We've been raised on this idea that growth has to happen year on year. Um, but one thing I draw hope from in the book is that change is possible and radical change is possible and it isn't necessarily the dystopia that we all think it is. Uh, and it's almost a thought experiment, but I look back at, for example, the the war economy of the United States, you know, months after, you know, right after Pearl Harbor. And it is absolutely fascinating how that nation turned on a dime. And, in, and obviously Canada and a whole bunch of other countries fit the same pattern, but they they transitioned, they turned on a dime, their industries transitioned to building arm, armaments and the ones that didn't basically became centers for repair where resources in society were we needed to make our resources last and and so it, people today call that the circular economy but that's part of where we have to go we have to make better use of our resources and you know if these metals are so critical and valuable why would we treat them like disposable garbage because that's currently what we're doing. The recycling mm -hmm. rates for most of the metals we use, including critical metals, are absolutely dismal, and they haven't moved a lot or improved a lot in since 2011, when the the most the biggest uh, study on on re global recycling rates happened to, to today, and and our economy and our society is actually becoming less circular. Uh, in our use of resources, even in the shorter term than it was even a couple years ago. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit, but these are un some of these solutions are unsexy, like use less. Right. 
And I guess, um, you know, there's, uh, it would be a courageous politician who will tell voters uh, that uh, they have to uh, use less and uh, change their lifestyle. So uh, it's, uh, we have uh, governance issues as well as critical minerals uh, issues, I guess. It's, uh, as you see, a tough conversation. Well, we need, we need brave politicians more than ever, right? Mm, yes. Well, Chris, uh, great to talk to you. Um, it's uh, an important book um, that people uh, should read, Pitfall, The Race to Mine the World's Most Vulnerable Places. Um, Chris, thanks so much. My pleasure. Christopher Pollan, author of Pitfall, The Race to Mine the World's Most Vulnerable Places, published by Greystone Books in partnership with the David Suzuki Institute. That's it for the program. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Hilary McGinnis is our researcher. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Emson Okamata.